Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast, a special needs podcast. Each week we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. In a world where there is less guidance, less money, more demand and continual changes, teachers, Sendcos and leaders need a way to keep up that fits in with their lives and the Sendcast is that answer. In this episode, our guest Wendy Lee, a speech language therapist with over 30 years experience in a wide range of settings, We'll be talking about supporting children with speech language communication needs in mainstream schools. But before we get started, have you heard of the Virtual Send Conference? This is a conference we started running back in 2019 that makes CPD around SEND more affordable and easier to access. We run the conference twice a year over the internet, so we come to you, not you come to us. But you can watch the videos whenever you need to. So it's something you can use on inset days, twilight sessions, and so on. So for more information about the Virtual Send Conference, please visit www.virtualsendconference.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you for having me. So... Around 10% of pupils have speech-language communication needs. So this is a topic that applies to every single teacher. In your experience, do teachers in our schools have the training experience to support these children? Well, some, some do. I think for some it's, it's difficult because teachers, as certainly as part of their initial teacher training, don't get an awful lot of information about SEND generally, but also not a lot about speech-language and communication in terms of typical development. So... It can be really difficult for them to recognise when children are struggling with aspects of their language or aspects of their communication. Some things are much more obvious than others. So it's easier to spot a child who maybe is unclear in their speech or a child who maybe doesn't say very much, but much more difficult to really pick out those children who struggle with understanding or maybe struggle with constructing really kind of rich and robust sentences. So some things are easier to spot than others. Some things are more difficult. But yeah, I think certainly the teachers that I speak to would like to have more information about recognising these children and also knowing what to do to support them in the classroom. Do you find, I'm, I go to a lot of schools, and a lot of time I go to schools and anything to do with anything like speech language, anything like that often gets referred to the Senko. I think that can be the case, yeah. I think with, with special educational needs and with SLCN, it is difficult because it's seen as a kind of specialist area. My discussions with teachers, we tend to say that, you know, if teachers are using their language to communicate with children, if they're talking in the classroom, then it's useful for them to really think about what impact that has on the children. So in the same way that if you had a child who was a wheelchair user, you would put a ramp up the steps so that they could get into the into the school or in, around the classrooms. As teachers, as adults, are the ramp for children with SLCN is the way in which we use our language. So in the classroom, if you have a child who's really struggling to understand what's been said to them, it helps for their for those children to have information maybe in chunks. So give them a little bit of information allow them to process that. A little bit of information, allow them to process that. And then you know that those children are going to more easily access the curriculum, more easily understand what it is that you want them to do or that, you know, what the topic is. So 
there's a whole range of things that we can do as teachers, but it's kind of everyone's responsibility. You know, if, if we talk to children, then we need to think about whether they're understanding what we're saying. And, and that's part of everybody's role. So key, key area, communication, language. If that's not developing well, if they're struggling with that, what's the impact going to be? Well, the impact's huge. So I guess the first thing to say is that in schools, if, you, if, you're, if you've got a SEN register, which everyone does, SLCN is the most prevalent SEN in primary schools. And so most of your children with SEN will have some degree of speech, language and communication need. It's an, it's an umbrella term. So it describes children with language disorder, with developmental language disorder and with other language difficulties. And so you will have a lot of children in your school, as we said, 10%. So a number in every classroom that will have speech, language and communication needs. If children struggle with their language, so they may have poor vocabulary, they may not understand what's being said to them, they may not be able to construct sentences, their narrative skills may be weak, they might not be able to construct a a narrative, they might not be able to use inference or reasoning skills. There's a whole range of different types of language difficulty that they may have. They may have a whole range of social interaction difficulties as part of their condition. Any aspect of that is going to impact on their learning their understanding, and also on other aspects of their overall development. So we know, for example, that children with SLCN do very much less well at the end of year SATs than other children with SEN or other typically developing children do. So the impact of having poor language is is huge, not just academically, but in terms of children's well-being too. Quite a lot of the schools where we work directly, we were looking right from senior leadership so from governors, uh, head teachers, senior leadership teams to think about how to plan for the numbers of children that they have. So looking at prevalence in terms of the research, looking at their own communities. So if you're in an area of social disadvantage, you will have more children with poor language and thinking about what that needs to look like from a strategic point of view, right from reception or nursery, if you have one through to year six, if you're a primary school but also in secondaries, what does that look like for the secondary school provision? How does how can we all work together to to kind of ensure that these children are enabled to do that the very best that they can? I suppose in some schools, because only some children receive the speech and language therapy and so on, it's often seen as a side thing, as a bit of a bolt-on. We're actually for these children, this is a crucial, this is actually going to remove those barriers. So schools need to change the way they think about this to actually this is a really core skill for that child. So we need to make sure as a school we're putting a lot of emphasis on this. Yeah, I mean I think it's really hard for schools because, you know, nobody nobody measures speech, language and communication development in the same way that they do say literacy skills. And these, there are no checks in place beyond the age of five to make sure that children's speech, language and communication is developing. And so it can be difficult to prioritise these skills because other things, by the very nature of our system, become huge priorities for schools. But actually children are not going to read and write well if they can't speak well, if they don't understand. Uh, Children are not going to develop and understand the problem-solving skills they need for maths if they haven't got the language, the maths, the math, mathematical language they need to access maths. You know, it, it's complex. So yeah, the, these skills really are the foundation for lots of lots of other areas of learning, and, and as I say, as, as well as the kind of social well-being side of things, which children are at school experience on a day-to-day basis too. 
So thinking about how to build it into systems, thinking about how to build it into current practice, quite often isn't a huge amount of time and space. It's a tweak to practice. So for example, I was working with a school where we were talking about whether the head teacher was confident that they were identifying all of the children with language needs in the school. And when we looked at the, the, the local cohorts, when we looked at the community, it was clear that there was a massive under-identification of children. And they had systems in place for identification. They had systems in place to kind of bring teams together to look at the nature of the children. And we just added speech, language and communication to some of those systems so that it, that question was being asked really at that strategic level. And then that cascades down into the classroom. So it really is planning from that level to think about what that looks like. I worked with another school, a secondary school, where, you know, the head teacher came, I was speaking at a conference and the head teacher asked me, do you think some of our children might have speech and language difficulties? And she asked me to go in and assess the children in year seven. And when we assessed them, over 80% of those children had speech, language and communication needs. So Actually, it was most of the children in the cohorts and you can't magically fix that with a with an intervention. You have to think about how do we all function as a school to prioritise strategies in the classroom that will really help these children to access what's going on. What else can we do to intervene to, to kind of change things for the children as well? So in some schools, it's a huge issue. If you are in a school in an area of disadvantage, you will guaranteed have more children with SLCN than, than children in other areas. And sometimes that does mean a kind of change of mind shift, a, a shift in practice where possible across the board, really. I suppose it's, it's a scaled response. There are certain things you can do that will help all children. And then there are those which may need to be assessed by a speech and language therapist. But after that, the recommendations can be done within the school. There are those where actually they will need speech and language therapy on an ongoing basis. Yeah, definitely. So there are definitely children, schools that we're working with where actually the children don't have a language disorder. They do have language difficulties. And what we've been able to put in place are strategies within the classroom because they've got a lot of children with difficulties that really benefit all of the children. But within that classroom, there are definitely children with developmental language disorder who need support from a speech and language therapist. What I think is a good way to go about things is that if as a therapist we're going into schools and identifying particular areas of, um, of need, so it might be vocabulary, it might be understanding particular concepts, it might be creating narratives, putting words together, that whatever we're seeing the child's needs as, if we're making suggestions, that fits into what's happening in the classroom. So if I'm saying, actually, you know, this child's got a really weak vocabulary, we need to support them to have better vocabulary learning strategies. The words that we can use to develop that can link into the curriculum. So if they're talking about the Romans, we can do some work that links to that curriculum, not necessarily subject specific, but those words that will really support them across lots of areas of the curriculum. If there are particular challenges at home where the children are struggling, again, we can build in what we're noticing in terms of the children's weakness into something that families can support at home. So if we're seeing things that where children are particular, particularly strong at something, so they might be really good at football or they might be really good at you know drawing or whatever it might be, we're kind of using those strengths to develop the areas where they're really struggling with. And that really works best when you have parents, teachers, speech and language therapists working collaboratively 
you know, I know a lot about language, but I don't know a lot about your child. You know, you know your child better than anyone. I know a lot about language, but I'm not a teacher in a classroom, you know, day-to-day teaching aspects to the children. Between us, we come out with some really good solutions for these children. But that means, again, at strategic level, building in the time to allow that to happen. And that's challenging at the moment. You know, teachers are very, very busy. Therapists are really struggling because the the therapy services are, are kind of really stretched. But for the, you know, for good outcomes for the children, collaboration, I, I believe, is really key. I know a lot of times a speech language therapist will go into a school during the day, work with a child who comes out of the class, do that work, and speech language therapist will leave. And there's no actual communication between that speech language therapist and the teacher or the parents. And then at the end of the year, they meet up at the annual review and say, how's it been going? And that does not make any sense. I think it's really tricky. You know, as I say, I think everybody's very stretched. But if time can be spent before that begins to get everybody on the same page so everybody knows together what we're working towards, then communication from that point can be by text or by email or by phone. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, when therapists go into school, it may be that the teachers, well, the teacher will be busy teaching, so they may not be able to spare the time to talk. The therapist might have another appointment to go to, so they can't hang around and, and have those conversations. But that communication needs to happen in other ways. Otherwise, it does feel like a bit of a drop in the ocean. And, you know, I don't know how effective that is across the board. So having that time at the beginning, building those kind of relationships, deciding together on what the priorities are for the children, the families, for the teachers in the in the school, and then really thinking about how to keep in touch with each other. Because with the best will in the world, some children make more rapid progress than you think they're going to, and you have to shift what it is that you're doing. Or some things might not particularly work well for that, that child. Or actually, you know, something that you see in a clinical situation isn't such an issue in the classroom or at home. So it really is about having those conversations about how to move the children forward. And that, you know, ironically, that's about communication. You know, yep. it's about talking to each other at the beginning and carrying on those conversations all the way through. In my experience, where that happens well is where we see, you know, good outcomes for the children. I think in most situations where there is therapy and you maybe see someone once a week, you're often given things to do in the meantime. So I've injured my back recently and I go to my Cairo and then she gives me lots of exercises to do between and I need to do them. There are times when I do them and there's times when I don't, but if I'm not doing them, it's not going to help me. It's the same for these children. If they're working on something for 20 minutes a week or 20 minutes a month, then the teacher and the parents need to be able to reinforcing that and supporting that. And they can't have the face-to-face time. Can't Parents don't have time to come to school. Teachers are teaching. But as you said, using email, using text messages, doing selfie videos, just saying this week we've been working on this is something which doesn't take too long, but it's actually really easy for parents to pick up and the teachers to pick up when, it's, when, it's, when they're available and watch that information and they can use and find opportunities to, within the home or school to reinforce that. I think, I mean, obviously all of that needs to be agreed at the beginning in terms of you know, sharing information and sharing data and so on. And there are the legal aspects of that. But I think making time to have those conversations at the beginning and setting out the fact that, you know, if I'm a speech and language therapist and I'm going into a school for, you know, however long, once a week or once a fortnight, I'm going to make so much difference. But actually, if that's reinforced, exactly as you say, you know, that's going to make so much more difference. And 
it's not necessarily that the resources aren't there for the therapist to come in regularly, which quite often they're not. It's better for other people to do it as well. You know, those are the people in the children's lives. It's better for families to be able to work with their children and use some of those strategies at home because it, it you know, it means that parents understand you know, how, how to have those conversations with the children, how to support them. And it means that as therapists, we understand what works for them and what doesn't. So the collaboration side of things, I think, is really, really important. And once you have that collaboration, that ongoing conversation about how well it's going is going to be much easier. Well, I think it's easier, but I think it's also more effective because if it's not going well, you need to know. And if it's going really well, then you need to know that as well so that you can kind of move things on. So although there are some general good practice strategies that I think, you know, every class teacher can use without too too much thinking about it, really, for children with the more kind of specific difficulties, it is really thinking about specifically what those children need and what works for them and, and yeah, working on that together. So we've talked about the impact. We've mentioned this sort of identification and some it's quite easy and for others it's uh, really finding, really picking through that. So there is lots of support out there, isn't there? I mean, there are, there's lots of information out there and uh, there is lots of support. So in terms of speech and language therapy, there are local services, local NHS services. As I say, I know a lot of services are stretched, but it's worth having conversations with your local teams. It's worth referring children if you're concerned. There are also independent therapists and there are guidelines around how to commission speech and language therapy from an independent therapist. The Communication Trust have done a fantastic document. Uh, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists have done the same. So if you're going to go do, down that route, it's really important to know exactly why you want to do that and be clear about the outcomes that you want for your children and your school. Once that assessment kind of processes through strategies to use in the classroom, there are certain things that are useful for children with SLCN. I mean, the first thing is to ask them. <laughs> and some children are really insightful and can tell you what works for them. Others might find that more of a challenge. But certainly giving children time is helpful. So if you think you're giving them enough time, then double it. And that might be right around about what they need. Really chunking information, so giving them bits of information at a time, giving them things to scaffold their language, so giving them sentence starters, helping them with connectives if that's an issue, doing things like teaching metacognition skills, so making children aware of what they do and don't know, helping them to reflect on their language, so metalinguistic skills, looking at, you know, was that a good sentence? Was that a good word? Are there other words I could use instead? There's lots of evidenced approaches to think about really teaching some of these skills. So we're not just about exposing children to new words. We're about teaching them in a, in a kind of robust way. And there are evidence-based solutions out there. So again, the Communication Trust have got a website called What Works. So if you're looking for interventions for your children, it's useful to have a look at what works and see what evidence there is behind some of the interventions that are out there. Certainly, it's important to think about whether that intervention is right for your child. So I get asked about a lot of interventions. I was involved in writing some and, and people will ask me, you know, this is what we need or tell me this is what we need. And quite often it's not the right thing for their children. It's a good intervention for some children, but for some children it 
you know, it's about matching the interventions with the children. So getting some guidance on that and what that looks like is, is really important. The other thing that's important is measuring the outcomes. So you need to check that the things are working. So particularly with interventions, if we're taking children out of the classroom, it has to be better for those children than staying in because in the classroom you've got your expert you've got your teacher teaching the children the interventions have to be really strong and robust and make a big difference to the children to kind of justify taking them out and there are some fantastic interventions out there that do that and but again it's measuring that and checking it and checking it that it's working for your children checking that if you've got interventions in place they're being delivered with fidelity so that they're you know if you've got a 10-week intervention you don't do eight weeks and stop you do 10 weeks, it's like antibiotics, take the full course and actually then you should see the results for the children that you're working with. And again, you know, for some children, it will be speech and language therapists working directly with the children or working with staff to support the children. And it could be any combination of that. So good practice in the classroom, targeted support if needed, direct support from therapists, collaborative working right across the board. And all of that takes time. And that's the, that's the challenge really which is why you go back to that initial kind of thought of, actually, this is a strategic piece that's worth thinking about because it's a lot of children. It's not that side piece, it's a big piece. And it all fits in that assess, plan, do, review. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You're meeting with those parents and the speech, you're meeting as a group and you're planning and assessing where you are, planning what you're going to do, then you're going to go and do it. And it's making sure you review that, making sure, are we actually making progress? Do we need to change things? Making sure you're reviewing it and going through the whole process again. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I can hear voices of teachers and therapists as I'm going is thinking we haven't got time for that. And I really do appreciate that it takes extra time to set things up well. But I also, from my experience, feel that if we do that well, you know, it takes less time in the long run. I think it's one of those things where kind of used to, because everyone's chasing league tables and results and pressures and all that sort of, and everyone's used to running in a certain way to achieve that. But as you said, this speech language is going to have a big impact. So when it comes to those wordy math questions where you've actually got to work out what that question is within that, when you're doing your comprehension, all this stuff you're doing at SATs, this speech language community is going to have a big impact on that. So if you are trying to improve that, this is actually a big thing you need to work on not just a nice little side thing it's a big thing that's going to impact these children all the way through yeah definitely definitely and I think you know where you do get therapists and teachers working together there's a real magic that happens there you know I I haven't got in-depth knowledge about the curriculum but I know quite a lot about it because I work with a lot of teachers and as I say between us we work out how to best support the children in the things that they're doing on a day-to-day basis you know, not necessarily taking the children off separately to to work on a you know targets that don't really sort of link. So it's it's sometimes children do need that. They sometimes need separate time. But actually trying to work collaboratively, I think, in my experience, works really well. So on a previous podcast, when we talked about early years, where there's a lot of playing, there's a lot of talking going on. As you sort of move up the school, there's less talking. Mm. There's less conversation. It's that. Uh, so are there any activities, clubs or interventions that actually can really help speech language communication needs? So in some ways, like Lego therapy is a great one because actually children are not thinking about the conversation. They're actually building something and the, commun- the communication 
Is this anxiety around it? Is there a saying with speech language communication? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lego therapy is great for communication because actually the children have got to explain things really clearly to somebody else. It's it's a kind of extension of barrier games which have been going around for, for, for years. So, yeah, definitely. I think, so I work a, a little bit with Cambridge University. They have Cambridge Oracy at Cambridge, which is really around supporting Oracy skills. And Oracy is becoming much more prevalent in lots of schools. So some schools are kind of seeing the value of oracy skills and building that into day-to-day practice. And that's great because actually what it means is that children are learning through their talk. They're using their talk to think together. For children with SLCN, that needs to be managed and we need to think very carefully about how to make that oracy approach inclusive of children with SLCN and that takes some thinking about but definitely there are strategies that are within that kind of area of work that work really nicely for children so for example with group work if you're working as a group you will be given strategies and guidance or rules of dialogue if you like to kind of support that conversation between the children if you've got a child with SLCN, it's useful to add group roles to that and give that child a very specific and tangible role so that they know exactly what they have to do within that group discussion at a level that's appropriate to them. So for lots of the things that are out there in terms of supporting oracy, they work for the children in that they give them the opportunities to talk, but we need to think how to make them very inclusive for children with SLCN. There are other approaches in the classroom. So as I say, things like using visual supports, giving more time for children to think, chunking language, making sure that children, you ask children whether they've understood, a whole range of things that you can do in the classroom, putting structures in place. So narrative structures or talking frames, lots and lots of stuff that's out there to support those uh, teachers to tweak their practice and include children with SLCN. And then in terms of those targeted interventions, things like Lego therapy can be great. And there are lots of interventions out there that support different aspects of speech, language and communication. The What Works site is a good place to look, but there is lots of information about different strategies that work. So it might be a narrative approach. It might be really sort of thinking about supporting children to, to question more uh, appropriately, to ask to support children to summarise the information that they're using, building up receptive language skills. It's a whole range of approaches to support vocabulary teaching. And lots of those can be integrated into the classroom, but lots of them can also be real targeted additional support for children who've got particular difficulties. I suppose when you think about play playtime, lunchtime, that's a big chunk of time. There's a lot of social interaction going on. When, when, when someone's struggling with their communication or they're struggling with the, that language and that expressing themselves, and that can be a hard time. Yeah, it really can. So lots of children um, that I work with they might manage quite nicely in the classroom, but playtimes, because it's so unstructured and because it is quite a long time for them, can be really challenging. And again, what you can do for those children is give them su- support and plan for that. So specific activities, things like buddy walls, where there's somebody that can kind of work with them, maybe using things like social stories to plan for different playground s- scenarios. If things do happen, giving them a mechanism to kind of build a narrative to explain exactly what's happened in the playground if there's been an incident again maybe using visual support and some schools you go in you can see that all of those things are in place because you see it on the walls you see it in the bones of the school and actually that's really lovely you can you can see that practice so definitely I've got a couple of schools where the support staff that we work with in the classroom 
also work in the playground and they do language activities with the children. They play playground games with them. They facilitate that talk and that play between the children. We've supported um, some schools to train up their lunchtime supervisors so they know what to look out for. They know how to support those children. They they see the signs when things are not going quite right. Sometimes children with language difficulties don't quite get the, the rules of games and so Sometimes we kind of teach them the rules of the games and help them to join in. So, again, it's it's that kind of forward planning, knowing, you know, the types of things that may crop up. And rather than dealing with the consequences of when it goes wrong, planning to prevent it from going wrong in the first place. So allowing those children the, the fun at playtime. Some children don't like that unstructured play. And so lunchtime clubs and things for those children can be can be helpful. So it's really trying to build that in, like I said at the beginning, to the system of the school. You know, what what is our strategic plan for thinking about how we embed communication right across the board for all children? And what does that look like for our children with SLCN? Yeah, my daughter's school, primary school, they have a really nice buddy system. It's one thing they all look forward to it because in the end of year four, they're assigned a buddy. That's going to be a new reception start, which I call ducklings. And it's lovely. So towards the end of that summer term, you meet your buddy and you write them a letter. So before they even come into the school, you've written a letter saying what a nice school it is, which is really great for that child coming in because they already now know someone. And then they meet their buddy. And on the first day of school in September, they spend the entire day with their buddy. It removes some of that anxiety. They're learning things around the school and they become really good friends, even though they're four or five years apart. And it's great because those children always know there's always a buddy there looking out for them who's a bigger kid, mm. nicer, safe, responsive. And it's always nice because every so often my daughter will say, oh, yeah, my buddy was a bit lonely today and we played together. And it's really nice because it's that comforting thing. Yeah, and they've got two years with them. And so as that child building that confidence, they've always known they've got someone to go to. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely thing. And I think that it's great for, for the older children too. We did a project when I was at the Communication Trust called Communication Leaders and we got, you know, children from oh, you know higher up in the school to go down into the into the early years uh, foundation stage and support them with language so sharing stories playing language games and again it was just a really nice way to support both groups of children to think about language and communication so yeah it, it, and i think some of that peer to peer stuff works not only in primaries but in secondaries too we have seen that work incredibly well and Again, there's evidence around that peer-to-peer work, works for literacy skills, for example. And again, the project that we did at the Trust Communication Leaders went into secondaries as well. And that, you know, it was a really effective way to get children to to have that person that they could talk to and 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 support in that way. I love it. Great. Go in there and you see them reading to each other. But it's also when, uh, when my daughter leaves primary school at the end of this year, the buddies will present them with their books, their leaving books. Oh, that's nice. So it's, it's, it's a nice, it's a two-year friendship. That just it's, it's amazing. It's great watching them. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Cool. So we've gone through a lot in this podcast. We've gone through sort of identifying impacts, how you can support, just not a little bolt-on. It's a big, as you said, strategic decision-making that schools have to think about. And it's also, it's not the Senkos. It's every teacher. Well, I think if you... As a teacher, use your language, which you know we all do. Then, yeah, it, it, it's thinking about how that language impacts on the children, uh, particularly those with SLCN, who it can be a barrier to their learning. And really, what we want to do is make it 
a way of accessing learning. So we can shift our language. It's not easy because we're all used to talking in a particular way, but it is just thinking about it and having it at the forefront of our minds. And yeah, having some of those structures and those strategies in place so that if children need that extra support, they know where to look for it. They know what that looks like. It's going to help those who are really struggling, but also those who may be just a bit of a struggle. It's going to help anyone. However you're changing things, it's going to have it. It's going to help everyone. Yeah, definitely. And we've done a a couple of projects recently in Key Stage 2 where we're supporting, just shifting the way that, supporting children through a sort of uh, sharing of books, really, but building language in a very sort of structured way. And what we found in those groups is when we put mixed ability children together, it benefits both ends uh, dramatically because actually the children who have got really good language have learnt how to explain things in a way that the other children understand which then benefits their learning you know you know yourself actually to to learn something teach it you know and that really helps those children to get their heads around what it is that they're learning but also really supports the other children in the group and actually they're just a team working together it's not a kind of hierarchical thing I know and you don't it really is that all the children bring something to that discussion that's you know everybody contributes in a different way and it's you know it works really well it's great I do love that I I do a lot two ways I learn is either teaching someone else or contextualizing it Mm. so often you'll learn something that makes no sense to you you try and put it in something you think of, something you can relate to, and that starts, then it starts making a lot more sense. And I think that's probably the case for, for lots of children with SLCN. Anything, you know, abstract concepts are difficult. And so having something to anchor it down, something concrete to make sense of it, um, it really does. So we, we did some work with some secondary pupils uh, where we were doing various aspects of, of language and vocabulary and and summarising, getting them to predict and so on. And when we went back to what we'd done in previous weeks, the thing that made it stick was the thing that they could relate to themselves or one of us. So we would share examples of of different words that link to our lives or we'd get them to come up with their own. And it was either the picture, so we used lots of visuals, or those really personal examples that the kids were like, oh, yeah, that's when you did that, wasn't it, miss? And, you know, it really, really helped them to... To, like you say, to contextualize it to make it stick. A lot of people with those memory games things, they always yeah. they turn it into pictures or a story in their yeah, head. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's all it's all linked. It's all linked. So thank you for coming on the show today. That's okay. There's lots of information we're going to put on our website. So the um, you mentioned the Burka. One thing I want to touch on that, which we haven't mentioned, is in that Burka research you were telling me before that we started recording that in the research a lot of people, I think it's a social emotional issues. There's an underlying SLCN. Yeah, so um, there is lots of information on the Burko 10 website, uh, lots of stats about prevalence of SLCN, about the numbers of children with SLCN that achieve results at the end of SATs at Key Stage 2, how many children get GCSEs. So do go and have a look because it's kind of shocking. But one of the figures, one of the stats is that 85% of children who access services, CAM services, have got undiagnosed speech, language and communication needs. So those children with social, emotional, mental health difficulties, quite a lot of those children have got undiagnosed SLCN. And, and you can understand that because, you know, we've, I'm sure we've all experienced just not being able to get your message across and how frustrating that is. My experiences is that for some children that creates huge frustration and they, they kind of demonstrate that by getting cross or, or uh, getting upset. 
but there is another huge group of children that, that kind of just become anxious and they're the quiet ones that quite often we can miss. So it can be frightening when you don't understand what's going on. It can be, you know, stressful and cause a lot of anxiety. And there are very strong links between SLCN and social, emotional, mental health difficulties. So, so often when you're, you might be seeing behaviour in your school, which isn't great, isn't positive, actually, if you unpick it, it's social, emotional, mental health. When you unpick that, it all leads back to this communication. But a lot of it could lead back to this communication. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we worked with a primary school where they asked us to assess their children who they were concerned about in terms of social, emotional, mental health. I think we assessed 12 children and there were a, a couple at each end. So a couple who were, the language was great, but really, really good. And they didn't have any language issues at all. And then at the other end, there were children who very clearly had very poor language, but also had quite significant learning needs. But in the middle, there were a group of children who had real strengths with some aspects of their language, but huge deficits in others. So we might have had a child who, for example, their vocabulary naming, so they could name a lot of things, but actually their understanding of inference was extremely poor. So for some of these children, it seemed almost like they were compensating with some of the relative areas of strength, but they still had huge deficits in aspects of their language. And yeah, it was really impacting on on their well-being, you know, really impacting on their well-being. And some of those children were extremely anxious and opted out of lots of things. And there was one child that was close to school school refusal and others that were really sort of having to be sent out of the classroom because they were really struggling in the classroom, really struggling to kind of sit and, and take listen to the class teacher and so on. So really strong links. And, and you know, that was just a, a kind of a school that we happen to be working with. But when you look at the national data set, when you look at the work of Burko and other pieces of work, language is definitely seen as a protective factor for mental health. And there is definitely a correlation between SLCN and social, emotional, mental health difficulties. Really important area. So, yeah, so we're going to put lots of links on the website, including that uh, Burko 10 Years On, the Communication Trust, Lingo Speech, and so on. That's all going to go on the website. So thank you for coming on the uh, show today. You can find our show notes with all the links on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe by going to our website, www.thesendcast.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with the latest news. Alternatively, you can follow us on Twitter at Sendcast, on Facebook, Sendcast, on Instagram, Sendcast, on LinkedIn. Just search for the Send, for Sendcast. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, let us know your thoughts, give us feedback, share your stories or anything, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. If you'd like to get in contact with Wendy, if you'd like advice, support, or various other things, including training, you can go to her website, which is www.lingospeech.co.uk. You can send Wendy an email at wendy at lingospeech.co.uk. And you can follow her on Twitter at lingo underscore speech. So if you've enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into our conference? So our virtual Send conference is like the Sendcast. It's run by B Squared, but it's covering all aspects of SEND. So we're not focusing on what we do in terms of assessment. We're covering everything to give you in-depth topics and in things you can take away in the moment. So in the coming conference, we've got a session on PDA, ODD, and various other things that you can actually 
watch these sessions and have some takeaways that you can go and implement in your school, hopefully straight away to make a difference. So we run our conference twice a year. We run it in March and November. Each one of those has 12 sessions. And you can buy tickets for future events or you can buy tickets to our previous events at any time because we record every conference so the videos are always available. So the cost for each conference is £60 and that covers the entire school, not per person. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount just by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening to the podcast. We will be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. So it's goodbye from me. Thanks. Bye from me.